Hi everyone, I'm Doug Gordon, and welcome to a special edition of The War on Cars. It is summer, so we're taking a very quick break to recharge our batteries, work on some exciting projects, and prepare our new episodes, with the next one coming real soon. In the meantime, we wanted to share this bonus episode we originally released in June for our Patreon supporters. It's our interview with Bob Sorokonich, the former editor-in-chief of Jalopnik, the news site about cars, the auto industry, and transportation. He was also the long-standing deputy editor of Road and Track. Pretty big crossover event here. My co-hosts Sarah Goodyear and Aaron Naprostek and I had a great conversation with Bob. He's a really nice guy, very thoughtful commentator on all things transportation, and it's the kind of thing you will get access to each month if you become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. You can go to thewaroncars.org and click support us, and starting at just $3 per month, you will get bonus episodes just like this one, as well as ad-free versions of regular episodes, invitations to live events, merch discounts, and we will send you stickers. Enjoy our interview with Bob Sorokonich. This is The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon, and I am here with my co-hosts, Aaron Napperstack and Sarah Goodyear. Hey. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, first of all, we got to say, if you are all listening to this, that means you are a Patreon supporter of the podcast. So thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. We have a very special guest for this episode. Bob Zorikonich is the former deputy editor of Road & Track magazine. He was until very recently the editor-in-chief of Jalopnik, the news and opinion site about cars, the auto industry, and transportation in general. We will get to this later, but he actually hired me to write something for them. So, uh, Bob, welcome to The War on Cars. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. You know, we should just make clear up front that this is not a hostage situation. Bob is here on his own volition. (laughs) Uh, Bob, you understand you are free to leave the studio at any time? (laughs) And I reserve that right. Okay, good, good. It, it is podcasting, but Bob, blink twice if you need people to rescue <laughs> I was going to say, nobody can see me blinking right now. I'm blinking furiously. Yes, yeah. Bob is not wearing an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> His wrists are not zip-tied. <laughs> I thought maybe uh, we could talk about a sort of uh, cars-related thing, the air quality in Brooklyn last week. We're all... Bob, you live pretty close by, so you were affected by this. Right by War on War on Cars headquarters. Yeah. Um, how'd you fare with our big air quality emergency? Um, I did all right. I definitely stayed indoors for, you know, several days at a time. Um, I actually went to the Metropolitan Opera um, one night, and I was amazed that the opera singers, like, were able to still sing through, you know, a, a, an airborne event. But, yeah, it was it was ominous. And, you know, I'm... I'm not going into an office anymore, so I was just sitting at home all day that day when it went from gray to, like, a really, like, apocalypse movie orange. Very bizarre. Yeah, the so last strange. time I'd seen that was in Southern California during the fires, and, like, it's weird to see that on the East Coast. Can we just can we just back up for one second here? Yeah. Okay, what? What's going on here with Bob and Doug? Uh, <laughs> like, Bob, why? But Doug, 
why do we have the editor of Road and Track and Jalopnik in our studio right now? Yeah, like, so what, I, what's going on? That's here? a great question. Yeah, yeah. it's a are, crossover are you, episode you, with the war you, on uh, the war on cars. This I'm, is your side piece. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you two timing us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I host a podcast called the War on the War on Cars. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like no, us on Instagram. How, but but how did you guys meet? Like, what, how did this come to be? A long time ago, you reached out to me, and we met for coffee because you live in the neighborhood. And uh, at that point, you were not at Jalopnik. You were that's when I was at game. Road and Track. Yeah, this was pre-pandemic. This yes. is how far back this goes. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just like I I realized that you were in the neighborhood, and I'd seen the War on Cars stickers everywhere, and I'd you know I'd followed a little bit of what what you all had been working on. Um, so we met up for coffee. You gave me some stickers. I brought them back to Road and Track headquarters, and which raised a lot of eyebrows. You know, a War on Cars sticker on my work laptop where I write car reviews. Nice. Um, yeah, and it just kind of it 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 flourished into the beautiful thing that it is now. Well, right. And then uh, you did hire me to write a piece for Jalopnik, which was all about the hashtag Ban Cars slogan, which we can get into in a little bit. But then very recently, Bob, you just left your job at Jalopnik and Bob emailed me and basically said in not so many words, like, yeah, I can come on now. That would be great. <laughs> not not that you couldn't have come on before. Yeah, were you forbidden before? Right. No, I just I just feel like, you know, now I can speak a little more freely about um, car media um, and I'm and I'm not immediately being recognized as like, you know, talking as the editor in chief of the most influential car news website on the Internet. So you don't have I'm to a go free through like agent. A, a PR department or something like that and have someone approve everything you're saying. I also have sure. a lot more free time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, this bonus episode is a real testament to Doug's um, diplomatic work, frankly. we got to build a big tent here. Yeah. It's sort of like cars. Reagan and Gorbachev or something. Yeah. Oh, I like huge. that. I like <laughs> yeah. that imagery. Huge <laughs> summit. But I have, a, I have a burning question. What kind of car do you drive? So I have a Mini Cooper, uh, ah. 2008 Cooper S, six-speed manual, of course. Um, it's my city kick-around car. Um, I also have a motorcycle. I have a Royal Enfield Continental. Basically, the Mini is a fake British car built by Germans, and the Royal Enfield is a fake British motorcycle built in India. So I love a fake British vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And why is the the, the six-speed thing sounded important to you? Um, manual transmissions are just, you know, something that car people hang on to. Stick and shift. Yeah. 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 It's, it. it's a it, point it. of pride. If I didn't mention that, somebody would somebody would go in the comments on your podcast and ask. It's so funny that, Aaron, you seem to have no idea what he was talking about. When you are the car owner of the three of us, I used Wait to drive minute. stick, and I, I really liked it. Look, so. we're yeah. trying not to turn off the Patreon subscribers. This is a bonus episode. I, I feel I mean, like I just got some dark lore here. Well, I do, I do then have to have a follow-up question, which is, so EVs can't have manual transmissions. Am I right? They can, but it would be a contrivance. So the whole reason why combustion vehicles have multi-gear transmissions is because a gasoline or diesel engine only makes enough power to get the car moving in a very narrow operational range. So it's like on a bicycle where you have all of the gears to make it easier to go slow and also to go fast. An electric motor doesn't need that. An electric motor does just as good of a job at a very slow speed as it does at a very fast speed. So you 
could have an electric vehicle with a manual transmission and some there are companies that do EV conversions of classic cars where they keep the the stick shift but it's sort of like it's adding a layer of complexity that you don't need and it's it's one of the it's one of the reasons why electric vehicles are more efficient is because you don't need all of that extra componentry because the motor can handle basically any speed you would want it to handle without a gearbox right Okay, but that's sad for people who like to drive that way. I'm it's, sorry. It sounds like you're being facetious, but it is genuinely true that no, people are mourning sad. the death of the manual transmission no. as we move to EVs. I, I mean, I, I am being serious that it's sad. I mean, we just have to let go of things as they change. So, right. but, I, but it is sad. And, and I do think that from my perspective as somebody who likes driving a stick sometimes – and I think it puts you more in touch with what it is that you're doing. Absolutely. And, and I think yeah. it makes you more aware of the car as a physical object in space that right. can hurt people, that you need to pay attention to. And it keeps your attention more you focused. Also, you I also think. can't have your phone in one hand. Yeah. Right. So or, it's or food. You I mean that that whole I mean one of my favorite slurs for cars is a living room on wheels. Mm-hmm. And when you're driving a stick shift, you, you really don't feel like you're in a living room on wheels. Like I knew you're we in would a car find common ground. I just didn't think it would happen this quickly. <laughs> I know, it's beautiful. One minute in. It's beautiful. We've solved the war on cars. That's it. Thank we you, everybody. It. All right, let's everybody drive stick shifts yeah. and bicycles. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> no, but I, I think there there is a commonality there where if you are somebody who loves riding a bicycle, you're, you have a better understanding of how that machine works because you need to know how the gears work, because you need to know you know, okay, I'm going to downshift to get up this hill and then I'm going to go into my high gear for level, you know, level riding. It's very similar and it is that mechanical connection and it does give you a lot of sympathy for the machine and understanding of how the machine works. And and if you're operating the machine with some sympathy, you're not detached from the experience. Sympathy for the machine is a great title for something, but I'm not sure what yet. It's pretty good. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I think also, you know, it's like the ultimate tactile experience, which is vanishing from cars entirely. Like touch, Absolutely. Touch screens for everything from adjusting your climate to the the radio and your music to even signaling now. is right. Really, people are losing that tactile sense, which is adding to the distraction and adding to the, as Aaron was saying, living room on wheels yeah. feeling. And it messes with your ability to drive responsibly because, you know, I sent you a video that I did on this about how you see so many people at night driving with their headlights off because they don't realize that they need to turn the headlights on because in a lot of modern cars, the dashboard is illuminated day or night. That always used to be your indicator. Oh, it's getting dark. I can't see the speedometer anymore. That that was your subconscious indicator to turn on your headlights. And now that cars have these illuminated dashboards because they look slick, that's the only reason why they have them is because they look cool. You've taken away this, this century-old subconscious reminder to turn on your headlights and i mean every time i'm out walking the dog i i yell at people you know turn your headlights Mm -hmm. on i'm i'm the neighborhood crank about this my girlfriend gets so embarrassed but it's it's one of those things where we've designed something that makes it harder for us to operate the vehicle safely and it's all just done for aesthetics it's all done because you know some luxury car maker did it 15 years ago and now everybody needs to do it Mm -hmm. to look cool but I feel like that's like almost everything in the modern 
car is like that, like, like the huge front ends of SUVs and pickup trucks right now. You know, my understanding is like there's no actual engineering need for that. Like we don't need a, a hood to be five or six feet off the ground. It's just that's just pure marketing. It's pure aesthetics and it's to intimidate. People, it's right? a little more convoluted than that. OK, um, so we have to separate, you know, talking about heavy duty vehicles versus crossovers you know crossovers are suvs that are built on the platform that's usually shared with a family sedan um the heavier duty vehicles the the pickup trucks and the suvs that are meant to tow heavy trailers or haul around heavy heavy cargo often need a bigger space for a radiator to keep the engine cool there's a standardized test that pickup truck makers do where they'll tow an ex, you know a heavy trailer up a steep grade in Arizona in like 100 plus degree weather. So you've got to have that giant radiator to keep the engine from overheating during this incredibly stressful test. But there's also a lot of, you know, vehicle design that's meant to make an aggressive vehicle look aggressive or a macho vehicle look macho. So there there definitely is an aspect of that. There's one other aspect here that I think is a little less well understood. Modern vehicles have to be designed for pedestrian impact safety. And so what you what you do is you have an airspace between the exterior nose of the vehicle and the mechanical stuff underneath, and that's your crumple zone. So if, you know, God forbid you do hit a pedestrian, the the front bodywork deforms to absorb that impact so that it's less energy transferred to the human body. And this is this is a very nuts and bolts part of car design, but it is what automakers point to whenever they get criticized for making vehicles that are, you know, bigger and bluffer and less aerodynamic is that they have to engineer in that crumple zone space for not only for, you know, regular impact testing, but also for pedestrian impact safety. And that's why a lot of cars, you know, you look at passenger cars from the 90s and they all had these very shrink wrapped sort of soap bar shaped noses for better aerodynamics. And then the pedestrian rules came in in the early 2000s and all of a sudden everything got sort of bluff and boxy in the front end. Hmm. But but there is also a fashion side to that. And and there's the reality that when the hood is five or six feet tall, it doesn't matter if there's a crumple zone on it because you're getting crushed under the wheels of that vehicle after being knocked down. Or so, you're getting sure. hit, hit in the chest and the head. I mean, there's that whole yeah. Detroit Free Press uh, investigation that showed that these vehicles with higher front ends are like way more dangerous than the ones with lower front ends. And, so, you know, there's also the visibility aspect of it where yeah. if you've got, you know, a, a, a child walking in front of you, you can't see them if they're within 8 or 10 or 12 feet of the nose of the vehicle. That part of it is, to my understanding, very much just driven by aesthetics. And it also plays into a broader thing where Vehicles that used to be considered work vehicles, that used to be considered, you know, commercial heavy duty vehicles are now being sold as luxury lifestyle vehicles and as status symbols. And so that's where you get into, you know, pickup trucks used to have a nose that was this high and now it's a foot higher because it looks cool, because it looks tough. That sort of gets to one of my questions about, you know, the marketing of cars is so relentless I and mean, so much money 
is spent on the marketing of cars and trucks and SUVs and and there's this constant sort of need to to fluff up how exciting and cool they are. I mean, sometimes I wonder if this product is really so good, why do they have to advertise it so much? Like, why is the marketing so kind of desperate in a way? Because you'd think, well, everybody needs a car. We're all going to go out and buy cars. Is it just buy this one instead of that one? I mean, it does seem sometimes like the advertising is, it's desperate. It feels desperate that they're saying like, this is going to make you cool. Oh, I don't if, know. I can, if I can jump in before yeah. you answer this question, because I think this is a thing that always comes up when I'm arguing with someone and they say, well, these giant cars that you're seeing out there, this is just a preference. Americans have a preference. They want these bigger cars. And that's exactly what I say to them. It's like, why does the auto industry spend billions of dollars on advertising if you just want this, like right. you think they would all be pretty happy to see their stock prices go up if they could just slash their marketing budgets because people just love seven foot tall hoods that can like crush an elderly person with like the slightest tap. Right. How do we get around that? So we've got a lot of threads to pull here. Yes. Um, pull them. First thing, modern cars are more durable and better built than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it was in the 50s and 60s when after two or three years, your car was basically spent. You know, my grandfather was a businessman. He would put 50,000 miles on his car every year. He would buy a new car every year all throughout the 60s because after a year and after 60,000 miles, that car was smoked. That doesn't happen anymore. The I don't know the exact stat on this, but rough numbers, the average vehicle on American roads right now is about 12 years old. That's older than it's ever been. And a lot of that is thanks to the fact that cars are more durable, warranties last longer, cars don't rust out like they used to. So if you want to sell new cars and if your business is selling new cars, you have to make it an emotional purchase. And that's always been the case. I mean, the auto industry basically invented modern PR and modern advertising because if you were just buying a car based on how much room it had for how many people you needed to move around, you would just buy the smallest, cheapest, most fuel-efficient vehicle out there. We know that's not how most people make that decision. I mean, it's it's not even how I make that decision, and I have more of an inside view into how automakers sell cars than the average person, and I'm still susceptible to it. The the aspect, Doug, that you brought up about how automakers hide behind this justification of, oh, we're just making these enormous gas-guzzling three-row SUVs because that's what people want. I start to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but the existence of advertising and the fact that automakers spend so much of their budget on advertising and marketing every year tells you that this shit works. We can curse on this podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. This shit works, and it's why they spend millions and millions of dollars. I mean, I I couldn't even give you a percentage off the top of my head, but marketing and advertising are a huge portion of what an automaker spends every year. When it comes to SUVs and pickup trucks, there's a chicken and egg thing because it is more advantageous for a car company to build what is considered a non-passenger vehicle, meaning a utility vehicle, meaning a pickup truck or an SUV, 
than it is to build a passenger car, which is sedans, station wagons, hatchbacks. This all goes back. uh, uh, This is more of an answer than you asked for. But this all goes back to in the 1960s, the federal government finally got around to categorizing vehicle types. And this was at the early days of, you know, emissions controls and, and fuel economy regulations on vehicles. And so the federal government defined two categories of vehicles. There's passenger cars, you know, sedans, coupes, station wagons, hatchbacks. And there are non-passenger vehicles. These are considered commercial vehicles, work vehicles, utility vehicles. At the time, they were thinking about pickup trucks and farm vehicles. Isn't this, so, there's a whole, like, the chicken tax thing? Am I right about this? This right? is like, part of it. Why should we penalize the farmer who needs to haul chickens? You know, why should they be taxed or have to pay more for a vehicle that they actually need? So I'm not, I, I don't know that genesis of it. The way that I know the chicken tax is there is there is basically a carve-out. If you're trying to sell a pickup truck in the U.S., if it's not made in the U.S., if it's imported to the U.S., there's a 25% tax on it right from the jump. That's why Toyota builds all their pickup trucks in the U.S. for the U.S. market. It's why, you know, name any German luxury automaker, they build their SUVs in the U.S. so that they don't get taxed 25% for being imported to the U.S. When the government made these two categories, passenger vehicle, non-passenger vehicle, they defined um, a set of rules for what constitutes a non-passenger vehicle. Um, it has to do with ground clearance. It has to do with um, the the frontal clearance. You know, so, so off-road vehicles have their front wheels very close to the front bumper so that they can climb over obstacles without scraping the bumper. So they defined this box which which categorizes a vehicle as a non-passenger vehicle. And they said, okay, if it fits this category, we're going to be less stringent on emissions and we're going to be less stringent on fuel economy. And so automakers in the late 80s, early 90s started to realize that it's less costly to engineer a vehicle. It requires less cutting-edge technology to make a vehicle that can that can live up to these more relaxed standards for a non-passenger vehicle. That's why in the 90s, you know, Ford and Jeep and eventually General Motors all start started marketing SUVs as family vehicles because they were more profitable to make and sell, partly because they were more luxurious than a than a standard family sedan but partly because they were cheaper to engineer and cheaper to build because they were not required to have the latest and greatest emissions and fuel economy technology. So you create this thing, you advertise it to suburban America as the new fashionable way to bring your kids around. You sort of tacitly create this friction between the minivan, which is considered the dorky family vehicle. The loser cruiser. Yeah, yeah. And, and the SUV, which is considered like adventurous and macho and cool looking. And then you you can throw your hands up and say, well, people love these SUVs. We would be foolish not to make them. So there's, again, it's it's a business. These are businesses that exist to sell cars. They found a way to make utility vehicles fashionable and more profitable. And they sold the daylights out of them. And they looked around and said, well, nobody's buying the passenger cars. What could we do? We had to kill the passenger cars. Ford killed every passenger vehicle except for the Mustang. 
and they created the environment and, and and not just Ford, all of the automakers that sell SUVs created the environment in which it was less profitable for them to make and sell passenger cars. And then they stopped making and selling passenger cars. Can I just pick up on something that you said in there? So we're talking about sort of the old classic way. And I think my dad was like this of buying a new car every year, every couple of years, maybe every four or five years. And now you're saying some of these cars are lasting, you know, 10, 12 years. All I could think of is like, we're fucked, man, because part of what we are told is that we need to electrify the, the fleet of vehicles as quickly as we possibly can. And we're talking about if someone buys a new gas burning car today in 2023, it won't be till 2035, 20, you know, somewhere around there that that car will be ready for replacement, hopefully then by an electric vehicle. But we have to electrify everything now, basically, by 2030 at the latest in many scenarios. It's So it's a tricky thing. Um, a part of why automakers have decided to preferentially make SUVs is um, they're a higher price vehicle and there's more profit built into them. And so, you know, Especially at the higher end, you're talking about vehicles that can push sixty, seventy, a hundred thousand dollars. You can you can get an Escalade well over a hundred grand if you're if you're luxurious with your options. Um, the average person probably can't afford a new car as easily as they could have thirty or forty years ago. So, as an automaker, you're prioritizing these high-priced vehicles that are going to the person who can afford to, you know, buy a car every two or three years, or more likely, lease it and then turn it back in, and the automaker can sell it as a certified pre-owned at their dealership, and that's how you get the turnover of all of these new luxury vehicles being bought and sold, and and that's how you keep the car sales numbers high. Um, the 12-year-old average vehicle fleet number, that's for everybody. That's for me driving my 2008 15-year-old car. That's for you know somebody who can't afford to buy a brand new car and is stuck in the used market buying something that's 5 or 6 or 10 or 15 years old. So that's part of it where somebody who's buying a, a, an internal combustion vehicle today, that vehicle will probably stick around for 12 years it may not stay in the same hands for that time frame. It may it may be sold to a second or third or fourth owner. But you're right. The the broader problem still is there that we are still selling combustion powered vehicles. And even even if we flipped a switch tomorrow and every new vehicle coming out of the factory was electric, you've still got an aging fleet of vehicles that's still out there. And I don't know how we solve that because there, you know. There are more people who can't afford a new car than who can, and EVs are expensive right now. It's hard to fathom how we solve that for people who just need a way to get to work and just need that five- or six-year-old car that's still going to get them to work. Look, so so cars, you, I'm sure you know the stats, they kill more than 40,000 people a year in America. They're the largest source of emissions that are screwing up our climate. You know, they've sort of helped to facilitate this exurban sprawl that is all across our country and causes numerous harms. I mean, you know, the litany of harms. And I just wondered, like, do automotive journalists see these harms caused by the car and the auto industry? Because to me, it's like it's almost like, 
you know, you could be working at like Guns and Ammo. You could be working at like, <laughs> you know, the Lockheed Martin magazine, the, you know, whatever those guys, like the arms dealers. Raytheon like, Monthly. Yeah, Raytheon Monthly. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't mean this to be like, like an obnoxious question. I'm, I'm just genuinely. A little like, late on that one. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> no, but no, it's a genuine no, I, I question. I don't want to make you defensive, I guess, is what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm genuinely curious, like, like to me, this, this product and this, in this industry are so nefarious and yet like we just sort of treat them like it's like any other widget on the american landscape so this is where i think the younger generation of car enthusiasts and car journalists are hyper aware of this you know when i when i was editor-in-chief of jalopnik pretty much every day we would end up writing an article about pedestrian safety, cyclist safety, about, you know, why are cars getting so enormous and why have SUVs taken over the marketplace almost inexorably? It's a very real concern. I don't think that concern is shared by some of the older members of this car journalist community. And in a way, that's understandable. You know, we we didn't really start talking about this in a mainstream way until the 21st century. And if if you're a car enthusiast and you've been reading Road and Track for 50 years, this is a new conversation to you. I can say for a fact that pretty much every car journalist that I've worked with in a significant way is concerned about this. They're concerned about the environment. They're concerned about carbon emissions. They're concerned with the fact that you know, despite the fact that cars today are safer than they've ever been, road deaths have pretty much plateaued and don't seem to be getting better. Um, these are real and, concerns. And pedestrian deaths are going up. Absolutely. I, I include that in yeah, road yeah. deaths. Okay, but I mean, I think it's worth saying that pedestrian deaths have not plateaued. They're actually going up. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a crisis. And if you're a conscientious car enthusiast, you have to be aware of these things. And I can't think of anybody that I've worked with that is ignorant to this or that is covering their eyes and pretending that this doesn't exist. And, and to, I mean, to Jalopnik's credit, you know, you guys had Doug write an article. I mean, I do think Jalopnik has been way, way better than, you know, the traditional auto magazines. Big part were. of that is that Jalopnik being an Internet publication can be a little more strident about things. And it's a younger editorial staff. And that's kind of that sounds like a simplistic an answer, but that's a big part of it. I mean, but does, I, that, does it not make the advertisers uncomfortable when you guys go in that direction? Not in my experience, because the advertisers only get uncomfortable when you're saying, you know, amalgamated motor incorporated makes a bad car. If you're talking about cars as a whole, amalgamated motors can say, well, they're not talking about us. And I mean, you know, there's there's a very real aspect of this where. There are a lot of brilliant minds in the car industry that are trying to solve these problems. You know, there are people whose entire job it is to try to find a way to minimize emissions, to try to find a way to make cars safer, to develop the advanced driving technologies that are meant to help drivers not crash and not hurt pedestrians or cyclists. It's called the bus. But also... also You're not wrong. But also... I mean, there are certain car brands, let's just name the Dodge Charger, that what another brand might consider to be bad press isn't bad press because they're trying to sell the image of a dangerous, frightening, violent image on the road. I mean, that's that's what they're selling. And so if you say, gosh, Dodge Charger has some really violent 
imagery and language in its advertising, is that really bad for them? So that's a part of the car culture that I struggle with. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love fast vehicles. I love powerful vehicles. I, you know, I would love to sit here and tell you that there's not a, you know, that that's not attached to the hooligan excitement of driving fast. But that's part of the allure for me. And I am also a cyclist. I am also a person who lives in a city. I'm also a person who walks and takes public transit and does not want to get run over. But why do I love sports cars? Because they're fast. You know, why do I love driving on an empty winding mountain road somewhere? Because that's exciting to me. I grapple with this. You know, this is this is a hard one for me. And I I think every conscientious car enthusiast grapples with this. It's the same it's the same feeling that I have about carbon emissions. I know that ideally our personal private transportation should not emit carbon. But I'm not as excited about the EVs that are out there right now as I am about a piston engine which I can understand and and where I can get very nuts and bolts with the engineering and get excited about that. I think you make a very good point, which is that right now there is an aspect of car marketing that feels toxic and that feels like it feels like it's going the same direction that the gun conversation went 15 or 20 years ago. It's, you know, there's there's more talk now than I've ever heard before from from the car community about well they're gonna they're gonna try and take this away you know the the Democrats want to take away my six point seven liter diesel engine pickup truck the you know the Democrats want me to ride the bus instead of driving my dually twenty five hundred Cummins and it is disheartening as a car enthusiast who is also a person living in a society. It's disheartening to me that the messaging that we've seen turn the gun debate into I need my AK-47 because somebody told me they don't want me to have it and I want to, you know, and I want to show them. I hate that that's becoming part of the car conversation now. The first eight years that I lived in New York, I didn't own a car. I loved it. I loved the freedom of it. I loved going elsewhere where the driving is enjoyable and driving and having a great time. I also love that I can read my paperback on the subway. And there's this false thing in car culture. And it is the car advertising is tiptoeing up to it. They're not outright embracing the message, but they're also not denouncing the message. There is this aspect where the messaging is like, somebody doesn't want you to have this. Therefore, you better fucking enjoy it, you know, and you'll show them by enjoying it. And I hate that. I hate how toxifying that is about the sort of extent that the car culture has that is under threat. And one of the questions I had for you is, what is the auto industry scared of? What do they fear the most? Regulation. (laughs) And it's such a simplistic answer, but, you know, I'm mostly in tune with the U.S. market, so most of what I'm saying here is relevant to the U.S. market. But any time the U.S. government proposes tightening tailpipe emissions or tightening crash regulations or anything like that. The industry pushes back. And if you look at it from a purely pragmatic standpoint, of course they're going to do that. Of course, General Motors 
in the ignition switch debacle where, you know, so many people died because their cars turned themselves off inadvertently. Of course, General Motors was going to try and pin that on the individual driver. That's how business works. And it's grotesque, but that's just what businesses are going to do. And so I come back once again to the utility vehicle thing. The way that the laws are written right now, it is more advantageous for an automaker to build an enormous vehicle because the the regulations are less strict on that enormous vehicle. And the automakers and the lobby did a lot of work to make sure that that's how it's done because it wasn't always done by footprint. Somewhere along the way, I don't know exactly when, I believe it was in like the mid-2000s, before 2010, the regulations changed from whatever it was before to footprint, and that's why the footprints are getting bigger. I don't think the auto industry as a whole is afraid of EVs. The auto industry has an opportunity with EVs to create products that are exciting and that are marketable in a way that previous vehicles were not. They love a new marketing angle. I think the EV transition is going to be tricky. And I think that, you know, there are there are unsolved problems around charging, around battery durability, around battery technology, around range. That's engineering. That's solvable. What the automakers dislike the most and where they put up the most resistance, they don't want to be told that they need to change how they make or design or sell or market the vehicles. That's the bottom line. So they're not the most scared of the war on cars? <laughs> I, I heard that in between the lines. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. Um, you could make it scarier on them. Okay. But, but no, but how do... So if we do... How do we defeat you? You know, um, no, but the, really the, the real question is... You have to defeat the suburbs. Yeah, so, so right. So at the very least, like how do we make it so that within cities, the cars that are being used in cities, the personal mobility products are smaller, safer, cleaner, um, just more appropriately quieter. designed, quieter. Like is there any scenario in which we can have a future where cities have a more city-appropriate type of personal mobility product. And if we want to call it a car, fine, it's a car. Maybe the auto industry can even make them. I don't care who makes them. Um, <laughs> golf carts. But like, like it's if it's so, golf carts, that's yeah, like, and, and, yeah. in all yeah, seriousness. Or like, yeah, yeah, like you go to Europe and you go to a major city and there are plenty of cars driving around and they are a half the size of the ones that we have. And Ali, our editor, just sent a picture of one. She was in Oslo, and it's a Renault Twizy. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. basically like a, it's like a cool It's a phone looking... booth. It's a phone <laughs> booth on wheels. No, it's like a very cool little like two-person golf cart. Oh, golf yeah. Cart, you know? I love it. I, I, think it's, I think it's such a fascinating engineering solution because it's trickier to make a small car small than it is to make a big car big. Mm. Um, so what do we do? First off, Fuel has to be much more expensive. A part of the reason why cars in Europe are tiny and thrifty is because they pay, on average, three times the price that we pay for fuel. So that's number one. Number two, get rid of free parking. If you own a car, you have to pay to park it somewhere. Half of the people who own cars will get rid of them in a city because it's a hassle. I mean, I, I live on a street where I have to move the car twice a week. 
You know, even if I'm not driving it, I have to drive it. You know, the third thing, and this is the part that's impossible to solve in a, in a short-term way, make it not cool to own a large vehicle. And I do think that will shift. I, I look at this with, a, with about a 30-year view. When the minivan was first invented, it, it was the most bonkers sales success ever. Chrysler basically invented the modern minivan, and the modern minivan saved Chrysler. Ford and General Motors looked around and went, oh, shit, we don't have one of these, and they cobbled together some half-baked stuff. And then for 10 years, the minivan was the dominant vehicle in America. And then we got into the marketing of, well, minivans aren't cool. Dad can't drive a minivan. Dad needs to drive a Jeep. Much the same way that I was talking a minute ago about how younger car enthusiasts are hyper aware of the limitations and the drawbacks of car culture, I think the trend will shift where large, ostentatious, oversized vehicles are going to become passe. We saw that for a minute when when Hummer failed. The, the 2008 financial crisis, all of a sudden, you know, gas prices shot up. Hyper expensive vehicles were no longer as fashionable as they were. Hummer went from being the iconic SUV to being a dead brand. I think this can happen again. And I think it's I think it naturally is poised to happen again because SUVs have been the dominant fashion item for 25, 30 years now. Shit doesn't last that long in fashion, you know? The next thing is bound to be small cars. We were talking about how we were we did an episode about pop culture not long ago and we'd been talking about succession and how in the early seasons of succession they were all in Escalades and Lincoln Navigators or yeah. whatever. And there was still some of that by season four, but most of the highest powered characters were going in sedan, limousine, black car type type of things. And maybe that's the 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 bellwether there for for the smallening the smallening of of vehicles because I you know it does it does drive me nuts when you when you hear people complaining about parking. You know, if you do have free parking at the curb and, and they're saying like, God, you know, it's so hard to park now. Well, not only do more people own cars, but every car is 10 feet longer than it used to be. It's yeah. like, just do the math. Yeah. But, wow. So there's an astounding image where uh, there's there's a car journalist and YouTuber, Doug DeMuro. He at one point owned a first generation Hummer. This was the literal military vehicle that Hummer then converted for civilian use. And it's enormous, and it looks like it's made out of wrought iron. He parked it next to a modern Toyota Camry, and they were just about the same length. And it's insane because you think of a Hummer and you think, oh, God, it's as wide as a Peterbilt. It's it's enormous, and you should need a special license to drive it. And the modern Camry has gotten so big that their shadows are kind of closer than you would expect they would be. And it's, you know... Again, it comes down to marketing. If you're selling a new version of the Amalgamated Motors vehicle, you don't want to say in the advertising, it's smaller. You don't want to say the back seat has less leg room. You don't want to say the trunk is shrunken somehow. Every car gets bigger with every new generation. And it's so that you can say, oh, my God, the Honda Civic has more room in the back seat than a Mercedes from five years ago. Of course I want to buy that new Civic. I get what you're saying. Like, if everyone is driving the big, 
black Escalade, Hummer, everyone's car looks the same, and someone cool comes along and starts driving something smaller. That's how fashion trends start, and then everyone starts doing that. I had to get rid of all my skinny jeans because skinny jeans aren't cool anymore. Right. Like suddenly you look around, everyone's wearing the same pair of white sneakers, right? Like, how did that happen? With cars, there's something more, though, going on because there's the reptilian part of our brain that says, I am going to be unsafe Mm. if I am not in the largest strongest, beefiest car. And so people might not be as willing to say, you know what's cool now? Hatchbacks. Little tiny hatchbacks are really cool. We're going to bring those back in the same way they might with like, yeah, skinny jeans are back or like bell bottoms are back or something like that, right? (laughs) Jean co's are back. That's the part that astounds Um, me. So I wonder, and, and much like with gun culture, where it's like, well, the bad guys have bigger guns, so I need a bigger gun. And there is something going on in our culture that seems to transcend just like the fickleness of whatever's cool. Like green is in fashion this season. Last year it was pink. Right. Uh, there's something more primal going on. I, I don't know. I, I Just to play devil's advocate here. I, I understand what you're saying. I think the cultural sort of surface level understanding that a big car is safer than a small car is very entrenched. That's 100% true. And that's very hard to fight against. But... At the same time, you know, it's also the thing where, like, you were talking about succession and characters uh, showing up in sedans. If you if you can get an Uber and it looks like that big SUV and any jamoke on Uber can get that big SUV, that big SUV is not cool anymore, you know? Um, yeah, but then you're like Deion Sanders who b- bought that. There's that picture that went around, right, of, like, that, him truck. in the essentially, like, a, <laughs> a, like a sanitation truck, essentially. Right. Like, so, so, with a, you know with a I mean? pickup truck bed bolted to it to make <laughs> right, it look like right, the world's right. biggest right. pickup and so, truck. Right, and so, I mean, he's probably yeah. thinking, yeah, any, you know, anybody in the NFL or any pro athlete or any coach can buy an Escalade, can buy an electric Hummer, can buy the Ford F-150 or F-750 or whatever they're selling now. Right. But I can buy, you know what I can buy? I can buy a fucking garbage truck and I can drive it to Whole Foods. <laughs> and so that's what I wonder if that might happen instead. You know, I don't know. I think if energy prices get high enough that people have to be worried about them again, whether that's, you know, fuel for your internal combustion vehicle or electricity for your electric vehicle, I think that could drive people into smaller vehicles. There's also, and this is such a car journalist trope, but there is the counter argument that, yes, a larger vehicle has mass on its side and in a collision, the the more massive item always wins. But if you're driving a smaller vehicle, you have a better chance of maneuvering away from the crash sure. and not rolling over. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, this is such car guy shit. Like, well, well, my Mazda Miata can get away from the crash. You know, it's, it, and it's, like I said, it's a meme in car culture. Like, oh, the smaller car always wins because you can zip away. Well, no, but I think there's something, you know, that's 100% true. And if you read Keith Bradshaw's High and Mighty, he makes that argument as well of like, the easiest crash to avoid and survive is the one you don't get into in the right. first place. Yeah. But it's it's one of those counterintuitive things, you know, I think much like induced demand. What do you mean? Like if I take away a lane of traffic, traffic could actually get better. Right. It's like, what do you mean if I'm in a smaller car, I might be safer that I think Americans can't get their heads around. Well, and there's, you know, again, there's a there's a base level logic to it that's undeniable. Our infrastructure has been falling apart and unmaintained for 50 years now. Our roads are trash. I, if, if I think that a pickup truck can get me home and to work without getting a flat tire on my underfunded, under-maintained roads, 
that's going to be a natural choice for me. That's the part that I think is going to be hard to counteract is not necessarily I feel safer in this giant vehicle, but I just need to get where I'm going without a trashed wheel stopping me. I worry about getting around in a snowstorm, so I need all-wheel drive. Grandma comes to visit once a year, so I need that third row of seats. That's the entrenched part, and that's the hard part. And I often wonder about that. You know, I drive a little Mini Cooper. I, I can barely fit four friends in there. And then I think back to the fact that, like, when I was born, my mom drove a Camaro, you know? All of my friends who are having kids now are buying boring, generic SUVs because, well, I need to fit the baby seat. Like, people survived, you know? People yeah, we all, had We all fun. went camping in, like, a station wagon. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's going to be a harder one to fix. But I also think, I mean, you've you've seen all of the cultural chat around K-trucks, these super, super micro-sized pickup trucks that are now finally old enough to be imported from Japan. I love those trucks. Mm -hmm. Every Gen Z car enthusiast I know is agog over yeah. K-trucks. Now, that's, that's a good example of cool. Yeah. Like that that's a kind of cool that. And I do wonder if Gen Z growing up with this very visceral awareness of the crisis that we're heading into is going to have a different attitude towards some of this stuff. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's bound just, to happen. It just I mean, it sucks that we put so much on younger people. Like, <laughs> I, hey, I, guys, clean up the mess that we've all made. But, yeah. But I do think there's a lot. Of I just don't think that. it's going to happen on its own. We need some of these other forces like fuel prices or regulation or cities somehow taking control over car regulation from the state and feds and just saying, look, like we're just not going to, you know, we're not going to let allow this type of car. On or this we're type at of least going to tax the hell out of yeah, it. We're, we're going to tax it, it at, at, you know, a much it's higher rate. It's not going to be free to store it on the street. Yeah. For, right. You know, um, this is where anymore. we all agree. And this is why I came here because <laughs> yes. you're doing great. Well, I, and, and genuinely, and, and, you know, I volunteered for this, not because I thought it was going to be a fight, but because we all agree and I, and I can't speak for everybody. There's a lot of toxicity in car culture, but I don't enjoy driving in traffic. I don't enjoy, you know, having to pay $100 to fill my tank because my pickup truck gets 13 miles to the gallon, you know, as a hypothetical human being. My favorite times that I'm driving are as far away from traffic and congestion as is humanly possible. You know, I there is no car enthusiast who sits in gridlock and goes, man, I fucking love this. You know, <laughs> I did a video on this for Jalopnik. I wrote an article about this for Jalopnik. Car enthusiasts should be fighting hand in hand with the people who want to decongestify cities and the people who want to make driving a a pleasure choice and not a survival necessity. Again, not speaking for everybody, but most of the car enthusiasts that I know who are under 40 are all in favor of that because we all grew up in gridlock. We all grew up watching, you know, the two-lane highway become the four-lane highway become the eight-lane highway and traffic never gets better. We all, you know, we're all at an age now where Oh, man, if I want a nice house, it's going to be an hour and 20 minute drive to where I have to go to work and I'm going to have to drive 30 minutes to get groceries. Nobody likes that. And it's yeah. it's almost unfathomable how we ended up in a society like that because nobody really likes it. 
Bob Sorokanich, thank you for joining the War on Cars. You did very well. Did we win the war? Uh, we're working on it. <laughs> with your help. With your help. You're our man on. You're it. our man on the inside. Now that you're we actually, need... well, now you're out. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, now I can speak freely about the fact that I actually hate cars and never liked them. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was our mole on the inside <laughs> the whole time.